Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fourth installment of our podcast series in the context of COVID-19. I'm Stephen Belmar, Director of Practice Improvement. And I'm Yolanda Madarnas, Physician Team Lead in Physician Consulting Services. Today, we thought we would talk about virtual care in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, Yolanda, the, the, the medical community has been very agile in pivoting to the use of virtual care. And not everyone is necessarily feeling agile. I know that in speaking with members on the phone, some tell us that they're struggling. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But you know, we have to give credit where credit is due. The majority of our members are telling us that they're actually using the phone to provide care. And, you know, and this isn't new, but they're using it more and more. And you know, that is technically virtual care, and that's an agile way to pivot to providing care. That's true. That's true. Using the phone is indeed virtual care. Virtual care isn't just about using platforms with video links and formal telemedicine channels. In fact, you know, virtual care, broadly speaking, is simply the provision of medical care using technology with a provider physically separate from a patient. So in this podcast, we're going to try to address some of the medical legal considerations when performing virtual care encounters. Many provincial colleges have published standards related to virtual care. It's important to be familiar with these requirements as well as the many resources that are available to you to help you implement virtual care. And indeed, these standards and guidelines highlight the importance of considerations like consent, privacy, limits to care, and documentation. So today, as we normally do, we'll have three takeaway messages. Well, first and foremost, let's state the obvious. Virtual care can't completely replace face-to-face encounters. We do need to use our clinical judgment to determine when a patient needs to be rebooked for an in-person assessment. Second, when it comes to virtual care visits, the standard of care should not be unduly compromised. Medicine is medicine, and some conditions are not amenable to virtual care, and patients need to be redirected for appropriate in-person assessments. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, not all virtual care platforms provide the same level of protection and security of patient health information. It's important that the patient understands and consents to moving ahead with a virtual care encounter. Right. So Yolanda, let's jump to number one. Virtual care cannot completely replace face-to-face encounters. That's obvious and goes without saying. Virtual care encounters aren't the same as face-to-face encounters for many different reasons. Of course, especially when they're done over the phone. Assessments will be missing key pieces from physical examination and from all the non-verbal information we instinctively pick up on without consciously thinking about them. Yeah, and that makes information gathering and information delivery that much more important. Right. So while the medicine is the same, a virtual encounter may require you put more effort into certain aspects. For instance, the pertinent negatives and pertinent positives and discharge instructions. Right. What do you mean by that, though? So our differential diagnosis and management plan is only as good as the information we receive. Perhaps more so in a virtual care encounter than a face-to-face encounter, we need to be careful to gather all of the information that we need. Right, so garbage in, garbage out. Kind of, and similarly, our discharge instructions need to be very clear, almost directive. For example, whether another virtual encounter is appropriate or whether that patient should go to the emergency room in the event of the situation not resolving. And you know, we're hearing, in fact, from our members that um, virtual care is not unanimously embraced just because, in fact, it can be somewhat awkward. 
But the reality is that it has an important role to play and it can be a valuable tool, provided we recognize its limits. True. Virtual care cannot replace face-to-face encounters entirely, but many conditions can safely be managed through virtual care, would you not say? That's true. And it does take clinical judgment, though, to decide which ones can or should not be managed with this modality, which takes us to key message number two the standard of care. Right. So the colleges and courts expect that physicians won't unnecessarily or unduly compromise the standard of care. Uh, They will take into account the context in which the care was provided. We talked about that in podcast Mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a pandemic situation, a court or a college is likely to allow somewhat more latitude for virtual care than in a non-pandemic situation. Context does matter. But judgment is critical. Absolutely. So while colleges acknowledge that these are unprecedented times, it is essential for any physician uh, going to use virtual care to consider just how suited virtual care is to assess any given patient. For instance, if you need to perform a specific physical exam maneuver, for instance, you may need to see a person in person. Sure. So You know, some elements of a clinical exam can be done via a virtual care modality if a camera is present. So a video may help you assess a rash or range of motion of a joint, but it's not going to allow you to palpate an abdomen. And by and large, most people tell us the phone is a good enough starting point. There may not be a need to go to a complicated series of web visits and Mm -hmm. platforms just so you can see a person. And of course, it's important to remember that everyone's practice is unique, so we each have to ask ourselves what problems can we safely assess and treat virtually, and which ones can we not? And not hesitating if the patient's condition is not amenable to being addressed virtually to rebook them for an in-person assessment, either with you, with a colleague, or or sending them to an emergency assessment center. Yeah. Let's uh, restate the obvious that Standard of care should not be unduly compromised by virtual care. Medicine remains medicine, and we need to offer our patients the best care possible under the circumstances. And, you know, uh, speaking to the colleges again, they they are aware of this, right? They've stated, a number of them have stated, that uh, they will assess potential complaints in the context of how the care was provided which is reassuring. But Stephen, um, two situations come to mind where we might stumble. Okay. Take, for example, a patient who insists on being seen in person when they're offered a virtual care encounter. Mm-hmm. And the flip side, a patient who we have asked to come in for a face-to-face encounter, but refuses to come and be seen in person. Well, you know what, Yolanda, those are good points. Uh, we've we've heard about members uh, from members on, mm-hmm. about those Indeed. issues, both of them. Um, and the reality is that, um, you know, with regards to the patients being concerned that they're, they won't be satisfied with the virtual visits, um, the rapid uptake of, of the virtual care would actually suggest otherwise, that people are actually embracing this and mm-hmm. finding it actually rather convenient. The biggest problem is, in fact, your second situation. It's that people who are seen virtually may, in fact, refuse to come in for a more in-depth assessment, and yeah. that can cause a problem for Absolutely. the treating physician. Absolutely. So in both situations, uh, taking time to explore the issue uh, is a great starting point. So for example, for the patient who insists on coming in, are there unmet expectations? What's the underlying need? Perhaps explaining that there is a risk of uh, contracting COVID if they come in and trying to balance that against their wishes. And so that might actually help them understand why a virtual visit may be appropriate despite some, um, some apprehensions around that. You know, similarly, when you do need to see someone for a more in-depth evaluation and they refuse, Taking the time to explore the concerns is again a great place to start.
So perhaps there's a misunderstanding over or an overestimation of the risk of contracting the virus that in fact needs to be addressed. And you know what we've seen this with people Absolutely. not wanting to go to emergency rooms, right? People are saying emergency rooms are empty compared to where they were before because there's a, that fear of, of the virus and, mm -hmm. and, and conveying that information that no, this is still a safe place to come and you really do need to do that uh, is important. We are hearing from patients, uh, from members, I should say, that um, they are seeing some patients that are more critically ill than they were before. Because they because, delayed yeah, attending. Yeah, exactly, because they delay attending the emergency room. So, you know, in those cases where patients are hesitant to go see someone in person, uh, it's important to document the advice that you give and your plans to comply with the standard of care, to do what the standard of care would call for. In essence, this, this really is informed refusal. Patients can refuse to be seen, can refuse to follow our recommendations, but as the physician, we do need to make sure that they understand those risks. Okay, so let's move to key point number three, Stephen. Are we there already? Uh-huh. Informed consent then. All right. So. Consent for virtual encounters isn't really implied by simply participating in the encounter, and it does need to be addressed. And this is really consent around the potential inherent security issues, the threat to personal health information that comes with virtual care. And it's important that we help our patients understand that privacy and security risks vis-a-vis uh, -vis their health information uh, exist with the use of any platform, be it telephone, telehealth, video conference, email. Security is a huge issue. We, should, we could spend a few podcasts yeah. talking about security. But basically, the big concern here is that the healthcare information can be intercepted by a third party. And that's where encryption of the platform is important. Simply put, encryption means that the information is scrambled and, and is undecipherable to anyone who doesn't have the access key. And specifically, it's important to understand that there's a difference between encryption at large and end-to-end -end encryption. Okay, that's going to need a little bit more explanation. Yeah, it is complicated indeed, and I'm going to do my best to try to explain it. So an, an encrypted platform doesn't allow anyone but the two users to see the data. The data is scrambled in transit, but it isn't scrambled when it sits on a provider's server. There, it's not encrypted, and that could potentially allow the technology provider, that company that sold you the platform, to mine your data while it sits on their servers. Without end-to-end -end encryption, they could theoretically access the content of that visit and figure out, for instance, that I'm an oncologist, that I specialize in breast cancer, that I connected with 10 patients in three regions between the hours of 9 and 3, and they can start building a profile that uses that information about my virtual care consults. Not the actual information, but use it for non-healthcare purposes. So that's where end-to-end -end encryption comes in. In end-to-end -end encryption, the platform company can't even access the content of the virtual care visit. That type of information is completely blocked off to them. It's definitely more secure, and, and those issues, whether or not your, your platform provides encryption or end-to-end -end encryption, is usually found in the small print, the fine mm -hmm. print of your mm -hmm. contract. Something most of us are not trained to understand, know about, or even know to look for. But uh, many provincial medical associations, colleges, and health authorities have actually come out with recommendations on which platforms they deem appropriate for use. Some have even bought licenses for all of their physicians, and some have services that can help you sort this out. Right. So Yolanda, if I was to work in a clinic or a hospital... Uh, or, or, and use a virtual care platform, for instance, that's provided by my provincial government. Mm -hmm. um, 
could I, as a physician, be held to account for something that I have no control over if there was to be a privacy breach? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, generally, physicians are allowed to rely on the systems provided to them by an employer, an institution, a clinic, a hospital. But that said, it's also a good idea to point out privacy concerns that you may have about your systems if you suspect or know about them. Even better for you to do it in writing so you can demonstrate your diligence. Yeah, that's a great point. And in fact, in, in most of these facilities, there are privacy officers whose job it is to look after that. So, yeah, you can't just use a patient's consent to use the platform to, quote-unquote, wash your hands of the security issues if there are, were to be any. In fact, one of the other issues to consider, right, is that patients should avoid using a computer or a device that doesn't belong to them, that belongs to someone else, their employer, for instance, because some elements of their healthcare visit information could be accessed mm -hmm. through things like cookies, for instance. Yep. So let's use this as the springboard to talk more about the consent issue. So are physicians expected to get consent each and every time they conduct a virtual visit? Well, it would be the prudent thing to do for sure. Wow. So each and every time they see the same patient, or can they just do it the first time? Well, you'll see me coming here again, I'm sure, right? <laughs> but. Ideally, you want to do it every time, and that's because the issues may be different from visit to visit, and the privacy concerns for one type of problem may be more acceptable to a patient than they are for another. Yeah, so I guess generally speaking, it's best to assume that patients haven't even considered the security issues associated with virtual care, and so it behooves us to point them out. I think that's certainly very diligent, right? Every mm -hmm. time. Every time. People forget, people change circumstances change. Right. And there's more to consent than the security of the platform. A another important aspect is the limitations of the care when done virtually. That's right. Does the patient actually understand that their issue may not be manageable by virtual care or that there are limitations in what you'll be able to say to them or the advice you'll be able to provide? And by that, if a physical exam is deemed to be necessary, that they're going to need to rebook for an in-person assessment or present to ER. Right. In the end, these consent issues, Yolanda, the good news about those is that they can be delegated to someone else. You, the physician, don't necessarily have to do it yourself every single time. Yeah, that's right. You can, you can delegate that first step of consent to a practical nurse, a nurse working with you, your medical office assistant, a clerk, as long as you're confident that they have enough knowledge to explain things well and to address any questions the patient has. And that confidence comes with you actually having had that discussion with them and training them mm -hmm. to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And then that way, once they've had that consent discussion with the patient, all you would need to do is kind of confirm with the patient when you log on that they are in fact okay with proceeding as you're checking their um, identifying information. And that's another important point, isn't it? Checking right. that you're actually speaking with the right person. Imagine that. I mean, it's in kind of intuitive in person, uh, but, um, you know, and it's perhaps less of an issue when you're dealing with a lot of follow-up of people that yeah. you know, mm -hmm. but certainly when you're seeing someone for the first time, it's a good idea to check that you are indeed speaking or seeing, speaking to or seeing the right person. And that can be as simple as asking them to hold up their health card to the camera or asking them for their address, uh, date of birth, to correlate with the information you have on file. I mean, uh, you know, when I call the credit card company, these are the questions they ask me to make sure they're speaking to the cardholder. And exactly, speaking about knowing who you're talking to, consider too the privacy of the space that you're in. 
That's right. You know, many of us are providing virtual care from our homes, and it's important that our spouses, children, for instance, can't overhear or see what's going on during our consults. Uh, yeah, that might be easier said than done. I know, but we do need to do our due diligence and do our best, and the kitchen table is probably not a good place. I think that would be safe to say, mm-hmm. yeah. And I that. Uh, you know, I'd add that it might be wise to ask your patient who at their end may be listening in or watching as well, right? That way you'll be better able to tailor your questions and conversations. And remember to document these aspects as well. Okay, Yolanda, uh, there's so much to cover, uh, but we, I think we need to wrap up on this issue. I know, uh, time flies once we get going. Right. Could we provide at least a take-home message for, for members who are exploring this brand new virtual care environment? So as with all things, focus on your communication skills. Take time to understand your patient's concerns and their expectations. Ask questions, but let patients ask theirs as well. It's easy to speak over one another and to interrupt each other without visual cues that we're used to having. For sure. You know, virtual care can eliminate some or even all of the nonverbal cues that we usually use to help us confirm understanding or satisfaction with an encounter. So we need to make extra efforts to use explicit verbal communication to fill in those gaps of the nonverbal nuances that we lose with virtual care. Let's not assume anything. You, you don't want to be filling in those gaps based on your own unconscious biases. You may interpret or believe things to have happened that in fact haven't. Mm -hmm. So we know uh, this is a lot. Uh, Please don't hesitate to call us to discuss your specific concerns or issues with virtual care. Certainly, Uh, these podcasts are not meant to be all-encompassing deep dives into anything in particular. They're they're meant to be an overview. Yeah, and food for thought. So, a reminder to um, have a look at the COVID... the COVID-19 hub on, yeah, the, on, our website. on our website. Lots of frequently asked questions. Que- chances are, if you're asking yourself the question, we've heard it before and it might be on our website. That said, don't hesitate to call us. We're always happy to talk to you in person. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. These learning materials are for general educational purposes only and are not intended to provide professional medical or legal advice, nor to constitute a standard of care for Canadian healthcare providers.